welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. episode of season two is called A Cult of One. We cover the strange case of a sex cult at Sarah Lawrence. We urge you to listen for a deeper dive. This is part two. In September of 2010, Daniel Barbin Levin moved into Sarah Lawrence's isolated wooded housing called Slonim Woods 9 with a woman named Talia Ray and six other undergrads. Like his housemates, Daniel was fragile, full of angst and existentialism. Talia's charismatic father, Larry Ray, soon moved into Slonim 9. Talia had long touted her father as a truth-teller. Soon, her roommates were in awe of this colorful, larger-than-life character that seemed to provide answers to their young and vulnerable minds. It didn't hurt that Larry would show them movies, keep the place clean, and order them in good food. He became a kind of Ertzatz dorm dad and therapist. Then things became sinister. What ensued was a terrifying campaign of mind control and abuse. Today, we have the honor of talking to Daniel Barbin Levin about his chilling and compelling firsthand experience in his new book, Sonam Woods Nine. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Really, really enjoyed your, your book. I have to say I found it truly terrifying in parts and very well written and, and very touching in many ways. Absolutely very compelling. Let me ask you if you could kind of bring us back to that time. And I know this is difficult probably, but if you could bring us back to, I believe you were a sophomore in Sarah Lawrence at this time. Yeah, when I first met Larry Ray, I had moved into a house on campus in the Slonim Woods set of buildings. These look like almost like modern condos, sort of, set on a woodland path. Not in the middle of campus, but not that far away from anything. Students would regularly walk along that path past our building if you were going to the gym or the music building. The campus, if anyone is familiar with Sarah Lawrence, is sort of what you imagine when you think of a New England liberal arts campus. Mostly these beautiful stone buildings and dotted with trees and hillsides and not really a proper quad as much as just sort of a, a ramble. A really beautiful, idyllic place. I went into it coming out of high school an angsty teen, I suppose, potentially a depressed 18-year-old, with a lot of questions about who I was, who I wanted to be, 
how to live, how to love, how do you have a relationship? What is sex and how do you do it? That sort of thing. And I think that college is a time for exploring those questions. It just happened that when I moved into this dorm, one of my roommates, among others, was Talia Ray. Her dad had been in jail, according to her, which anyone who knew her would have heard this story a million times. Her dad was the victim of this, this conspiracy. He had been a hero. He had turned in Bernie Carrick, who was corrupt police commissioner of New York. He had ended the Kosovo War, all, all of these unbelievable things, and had been unjustly incarcerated. And he was finally getting out, and they were finally going to be reunited. And would it be okay if he just stayed on our couch or in her room for a bit while he got his feet back under him? That's how I first encountered the man who would later be my abuser and the leader of what I think I can now call a cult. I think to most of our listeners, the idea of having somebody's 50-year-old father move into your dorm room is just bizarre. Did it seem normal? I think that's the thing that... I mean, was Talia so convincing that this seemed okay to you? It is striking as kind of a bizarre situation. Of course. So it's a combination of things, right? I think, first of all, we have to travel back in time to when you were 18, 19 years old. I don't know about you, but for me, there wasn't really any easy answer to the question of what is normal anyway. I really didn't have a clear definition for that. Of course, now, if I were asked, is it normal for a 50-year-old man to live with a bunch of 18-year-olds, I would say that's absurd. But at the time, I really didn't have a frame of reference. Not only that, but I frankly didn't care that much. I was just distracted with other things. I was in my first serious relationship. I was balancing classes, which I was sort of barely holding on to with trying to socialize and make friends and have fun and have a college experience. And then on the side, this young woman, Talia, who she was the only one telling us her story and her story was that she had been the victim of a horrendous tragedy which had gone on her whole life. Her mom had abused her. Her dad had tried to save her from that situation and been put in jail. She had emancipated herself from her mom and been in homeless shelters and then gotten herself into Sarah Lawrence. So she was this sort of incredible heroic figure that I couldn't even really understand what she had been through. Her dad was this heroic figure and similarly was incomprehensible. And we were all a bunch of privileged college kids who had been able to choose to separate ourselves from our parents. We had gotten to say, oh, I want to be independent. I want to individuate. I'm going to go to college and sort of do my thing and have fun. And she had been struggling this whole time. And she was saying, I just want to see my dad. And, And so it's pretty hard to say no to that. It's even harder in a group if you're being asked, you're one of seven people. Sure. You know, you, it's a group think thing. You look around and no one's saying no. So why, why would you say no? So you're shaking hands with Larry Ray. Give us your snapshot impression of him. Mm-hmm. Larry, when you first meet him, 
there's an initial physical impression that is quickly overwhelmed by a kind of psychological impression. So initially, this is kind of a surprisingly small man in terms of his height. He's got a completely clean-shaven head, is sort of gleaming. He's tan in a way that doesn't look fake, but also somehow looks unnatural, like so perfect and sort of barrel-like his stature, you know? But quickly, because of his tone and the way that he carried himself and his big hands would like envelop your hand, there's this sort of sense of that all of that is in fact strength and poise and a sort of almost bulldog-like aggressiveness that the barrel-like body is somehow in fact like muscle and, and a big chest and all these things. And, and in my mind, I will say for years afterwards, a person inflates in your memory. And I remembered him as so big and so scary and all these things. And it took a long time for him to sort of deflate. And I had read in the cut, too, that, and tell me if this is accurate or not, that you at first were kind of hesitant about Larry. You were kind of like, who is this guy a little bit? And that you took, and I read in your book, you guys went out to Starbucks, you had a coffee, you had a talk. What did he say to you at that talk? Well, let me address the hesitance first. So that's right. After that initial impression, he was spending time around the dorm room. He would get us all takeout from the kind of expensive Italian place in town. And that was much more appealing than the dining hall. But he would prattle on and on. Like this guy would talk at this unbelievable clip with no space for anyone to respond. It was constantly a one-way street. And so talking to him felt so unappealing at the time because it was just a hassle. You'd just be trapped in a conversation that would last forever. And I wanted to do other things. And he seemed weird. I just kind of have a weird energy that was so frenetic. So I wasn't very interested at first. Towards the end of sophomore year, a combination of things were happening. My relationship was kind of stumbling towards a painful end. And as I said, it was my first relationship. So it was also my first breakup. And I was ending my second year in college just outside of the city. I didn't want to go back home, but I didn't have any money and I didn't know how to live in New York. And my friends, some of them were living in the city and I just couldn't really figure it out. And so by that time, a couple of my roommates had sat down for those Italian takeout meals with Larry and they had gotten a little bit more involved and even inculcated, which I didn't really realize. And they suggested that I talk to him, that he would be able to offer me advice on this relationship situation and, and even maybe help me figure out finding a place to stay in New York. And it sounded fairly innocuous. He had seemed relatively harmless around the house. So I said, fine. And I met him at Starbucks on the Upper East Side. And we had a conversation that I thought was just going to be coffee. And it very quickly turned into, he was asking me questions that felt like they somehow transcended normal conversation or, or niceties. They cut through small talk and went far beyond big talk. 
so somehow we were very quickly talking about my mom was sick when I was growing up and how that made me feel and what I thought that meant for my family and our, our family dynamics and, and what that had done for me as a kid and my dad and his sort of behavior in my childhood. And then we were talking about my relationship a bit, but that quickly turned into a conversation about sex and sexuality and, and how I felt confident or insecure and how did I feel about my body and all of these things that it's pretty difficult for me to go back there and explain beat by beat how he managed that. At the time, I think I was a pretty unprepared young person. And this man went into that conversation knowing exactly what he was doing. And I, I don't think it was very hard for him. And a lot of that conversation for me just felt like finally being asked questions about myself and my feelings and getting to talk about things that I had never been able to be open about, but had always just wanted to know about. As I said, I went into college just wondering who am I and, and feeling just unclear about how you're supposed to do things and talk to people. And no one had told me there was no instruction manual. And this guy came along and he said, oh, you don't have to feel so lost or confused because there are very clear answers and I can provide them. And, and in fact, it would not be difficult for me. We can move beyond this set of questions and I can help you become the best version of yourself. So he made you feel heard and relevant. And it seems like people like Larry really do have that ability to make people feel special and important. Yeah. I mean, maybe it says something about what we all need, <laughs> especially yeah. when we're young. Yes. And, and it's so insidious and, and sort of sad that someone who is so, so awful in the end also had this capacity to make someone feel loved, essentially, so mm -hmm. quickly. And part of that, too, is validation, right? Him, what they call like love bombing, but initially just felt like someone telling me like, no, you're incredible. You're so special. I've seen that from afar. You're especially intelligent and creative. You have a special mind. and all of this pain and stuff that you're feeling will be easy to sort of untie. And in fact, that's where my expertise lies. And he made me feel even like my discomfort, these questions that I had, this is where it diverges. He made me feel like those were unusual problems, that I had a unique set of issues that only he could help me with. Mm, right? uh, interesting. Because if he was really a friend, he would have said, well, these things are really, everyone at this age is, is dealing with these questions. It sounds honestly like maybe you're dealing with depression, you should see a therapist, that sort of thing. But what he was in fact saying to me was, you have a really unique set of issues. In fact, the rest of your friends also have these unique issues. It's this extraordinary, interesting thing that my daughter has gathered all of you in this dorm. And I'm the only one who can help all of you. Mm. Wow, what terrible manipulation. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, he really did try to play therapist to you guys, I think, and kind mm -hmm. of diagnose your problems, it seems like, and purport to be able to fix them. I think that's tempting for anybody, but especially oh, if you're 19 and it's like, oh, yippee, I've got somebody who's got the answer kind of thing. Oh, you know, I think at any age, but yeah, especially when you're young, if somebody is purporting to have all the answers. Yeah, well, and at that age, you have to remember when you go to college, that's the first time 
for most people that you are parenting yourself. You've separated from your parents and no one really tells you. I mean, you know you're going to be independent, but it's your job to be your own parent. And you, you're given space to fail at that, which is okay, but it's scary. And this man came in, yes, as a therapist figure, but also as a father figure, just saying, I'm going to provide that comfort and that security and that foundation that has sort of been pulled out from under you. I love, though, the quote from, I think it was also the cut as well, and you, I don't think you bring this up in your book. Maybe you do, and I can't remember, but that you probably wouldn't have joined a cult if you'd been able to figure out housing in New York City. <laughs> so you do move into the apartment on 93rd Street with Larry mm -hmm. Ray and with some of the housemates from Sloan and Woods 9. So describe that. Yeah, so I, I should say, going back to that conversation at Starbucks, I talked a little bit about the content, but it also was a conversation that I assumed would be 40 minutes or something like that. And it... By the end of it, the sun had gone down and I sort of didn't realize how much time had passed and suddenly it was night and we had been talking, I think I say in the book, conservatively for six hours. I think it may have been longer. So that was one of the things that felt sort of mystifying about how was he able to do that because it didn't feel like that long. And when we left the cafe, we walked a bit. He told me I should break up with my girlfriend and that that would be fine. And we walked around the corner. And there was a limousine waiting there and the door of the limousine opened and all my friends were inside. And what I didn't realize, but would realize later was that they had all been sitting there and waiting for the entire six plus hours and just waiting. And so that I think is maybe indicative of the type of power he already had to make people wait isn't physical or sexual abuse, but it, it's a type of power that they were that committed. And from there, soon after, as you say, I agreed to stay at the apartment that he was in with a couple of my friends. In my mind, it was not unlike what I had already been doing. I'd been staying a little bit at my brother's apartment. I stayed at other friends' places, sort of couch surfing while I figured out what I was doing in New York. I'd gotten a job downtown at an ice cream place. I was having my, my summer in New York. And so this was just going to be another place where I could stay. But then I didn't leave. And so I was sleeping on the couch in the living room of this one bedroom apartment. Larry and Talia and Isabella were all staying in the bedroom. We can have a whole other conversation about why. That's so that. bizarre. I'm yeah. sorry. No, I know. Yeah. And by that time, that's one thing that I still, it's really hard for me to make sense of. I think that I perhaps on some level just didn't want to think about it because I had a couch to sleep on. I think more so they had so presented themselves as a sort of family unit that Isabella, by that time, I had been told a bunch about how Isabella's family was abusive, that she had in fact sort of come to Sarah Lawrence finally acknowledged the extreme abuse that she had gone through when she was younger. Larry had kind of helped her recognize that, and he was doing her the favor. He was sort of happy to like take her in, give her a place to stay, help her out while she figured out what she was doing. And her and Talia, even before Larry showed up at Slonum, Isabella and Talia were best, best friends, almost like sisters. So they became the kind of this family. And all of this at this time was all presented as 
Larry being magnanimous. He was helping out this like poor young woman who had escaped her abusive family. Can you I, tell us what the actuality was, though? Because well, he, in actuality, he was sleeping with Isabella. Right. Yeah. So I would learn that that was the case later on when I didn't realize that I was being groomed as a sexual partner for Isabella and for him, that they would pull me into a kind of sexual dynamic that I assume had been going on. I just don't know when exactly. There were times when he was spending hours and hours in her room at Sarah Lawrence in Slonum. And it's unclear to me whether at that time that was grooming and, and sort of them, in fact, having conversations that were setting up later sexual abuse, or if it was already starting then. I don't really have a way of knowing. It was presented to me as if I was receiving a sexual education and that the two of them would not be sexually involved in any capacity were it not because of me. So I was treated as if I was sort of the fulcrum. And, and of course, they don't have an independent sexual relationship. But it, it, It's curious to me in the book, too, that he almost presents Isabella as the sort of sexually aggressive one, like she's mm -hmm. super sexual. And he really presents it right. to you like that as well. Yeah, it's a sort of a horrible warping of sex positivity. He took this idea that was new to me going into college where he was essentially saying, oh, your ideas about sex are all wrong. Women like sex and, and want it, you know, so fine, sure. But then taking that and amplifying it into saying that this young woman who is the victim of this horrible situation is in fact the person propelling it forward. The context makes the idea of sex positivity completely irrelevant and it makes the idea of consent impossible. And do you think that Isabella and Talia, do you think that Larry was encouraging people to remember abuse that wasn't actually there to alienate them from their parents? Oh or, yeah, you know, undeniably. Yeah. Rather than be, you know, actual abuse, he was kind of creating, encouraging people to be alienated from their families. Or to misremember. Right, misremember. So their reliance would completely be on him and not on any outside influences. Absolutely. So, I mean, this is really standard. Uh, I've learned since for yeah. cult, <laughs> cult leaders. Yes. Part of what is so difficult about it was that Larry was leveraging real feelings that we had and inserting explanations that were perhaps partially or wholly false, right? So I really did feel pain and confusion and sadness in general. And, and I think that I could talk for a long time about where that comes from. And, and I think mostly it's just growing up with a chronically ill parent and all of these things. But what he did was say, what you feel is incredibly unusual. It's outsized for any typical explanation. There must be a repressed memory in there. There's something. And it's amazing what you can achieve if you sit someone down in a seat and you have their friends around them in a semicircle, and you're sitting in a living room in an apartment in Manhattan, and you are asking them for hours and hours and hours, 
let's go back into when you were very young and let's try and be there. And when you're four, you're five, you're six, and you're in a room and let's think about your parents, how you felt about your parents. Was there anything that happened at any point? Can you think of any time when someone might have made you feel bad and, and just pushing and pushing and pushing? And there's so much peer pressure in that situation. You are also set up to know that success in that situation to make Larry happy is to say, oh, yes, I do. There is a memory in there. Someone did abuse me or hurt me, all these things. So it's incredible what you will admit under pressure like that. Yeah, so, so absolutely. I think it was a technique to make people feel attached to Larry, to make them believe in him because I would watch this happen for other people and it seemed authentic. So I'd be like, oh, Ingrid, they did have a repressed memory. Wow. And to separate people from their support network so that they wouldn't, if they did start to think I need, this is bad, there'd be nowhere to go. There's a point in the book, and I, I'm sorry, I'm unclear about the details, but there's a point mm -hmm. in the book. I think you talk to Claudia, who's one of the housemates, and I think you're kind of like, is this weird or is it just me? Like you're kind of asking her about Larry. And it's so terrifying to me that she makes you feel like the weirdo. Like, you know, she, she makes you feel like, oh no, you're just not getting it. You can tell she's fully inculcated at that point. It's terrifying to me, that part of the book. It seems like a lot of it is such basic cult behavior. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the apartment and the way he woke you up and the meetings, because that was very intense. Mm -hmm. to me. I mean, the way he woke you up every morning, maybe you could talk about that, which was kind of bizarre. Sure. Yeah, those are kind of two separate. Yeah, things. two separate things. Yeah, but it's, stop stepping on my question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but just like the day to day, kind of how he controlled your environment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, so first, <laughs> I, I will address the Claudia question. Yeah, um, so, no, no. We're getting excited yeah. here. Sure. So that was an instance early on where, right, I was questioning a little bit the situation. You have to remember that someone who's in a cult. We have an idea in our minds, an image when, when we hear cult follower, or at least I did, where, you know, they're wearing robes and their head is shaved and they are carrying Kool-Aid all the time. But it's kind of, we think we know what it looks like and that it would be obvious and we would never, well, there's a bunch of people in white robes and they're holding hands in a circle. I'm not, why would I have anything to do with that? In this case, and in a lot of cases, cult followers look like very normal people. And in fact, they look like your friends. And the only difference is that they just can't stop talking about how great this one guy is. It's like the Keith Rainier. He looks like a normal guy. You just right. see it. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if, I guess if there's any advice, just look out for anyone who just can't stop espousing how fantastic one person is. And there's absolutely no room for criticism. And so in this case, I tried in what I thought was a normal way to levy a little bit of a criticism at Larry. This was sort of before I was in it. And what had happened was that it was the first night I had slept over at the apartment. I wasn't fully staying there yet. And the bedroom door opened. I was sleeping on the couch in the living room and Isabella came out. And for context, before Larry, I had met Isabella in freshman year, we'd sort of known each other. I'd had the sense that this person maybe was attracted to me. I wasn't interested. So I was kind of, I had maintained distance. 
she came out of the bedroom and came up to me. I was there in my like boxers and my shirt for to go to bed. And she pulled my boxers off of me and performed oral sex on me. And I remember feeling like frozen because I was in this apartment where I was supposed to be staying for the night. And she was kind of a member of the family. And it felt like I couldn't say no because what I would make a whole fuss out of it or she'd be mad at me or Larry would be mad. I wouldn't be able to stay there. That What would I leave? Where would I go? So I kind of just let, and, and also on some level, there's a masculinity thing where I was like, what's wrong? I'm supposed to be this person's doing this. Why wouldn't I want this? So I let that happen. And the next day I went over to Claudia's because her parents had an apartment in New York. And I tried to kind of say this to her. And even further, I said, you know, it felt to me, I had this suspicion where I was like, it felt to me like Larry sent her out to do that. I said, it felt like he engineered this. Because it was just kind of my feeling. I thought he told me to break up with my girlfriend and he's so close to Isabella and maybe she expressed that she had a crush on me and maybe he said, oh, go for it, something. And so I said to her, I think he engineered that. And she got so freaked out and upset and pushed back as hard as she could. And then later on ended up telling Larry directly. And so that became a whole problem. And the lesson from that was that to criticize Larry is to immediately be found out. There's no safety. There's no opportunity for crosstalk. We're not going to check with each other. Everything's going to go through him. So that's the answer to that question. As far as the day-to-day -day routine, ultimately at its height, I was sleeping. If I got to sleep, maybe it was four hours a night, something like that, completely out of it all the time. We'd be woken up in the morning. Larry had crafted with Isabella this playlist. Part of their relationship was supposedly based on her like incredible love of and knowledge of music. They made this playlist. The whole playlist was something like 100 songs, but it was always the first. It was always in the same order. And I believe the first song was Bob O'Reilly, Teenage Wasteland by The Who. So that crazy sort of, I think it's like organ solo at the beginning as loud as you can imagine to start your day and then going into i think lovely day by bill withers but just the same songs over and over and larry presented this the whole schedule all of it is sort of based in his military background that he had been a marine that what we were going through was a kind of boot camp and that would be so good for us. And there was a lot of talk about how the Marines were like the pinnacle of humanity. And it depends on if you were to check in at different points over the two years that I was there, the schedule would be different. It might be that I was up at 6 a.m. just sort of circling the block in his car trying to find a parking spot and not finding one and then getting in trouble when I'd come back in as if I had intentionally spent that time away or we were doing woodworking building a filing cabinet that would never get built until sunrise but the most common characteristic was us sitting around one person in the hot seat being interrogated because they had supposedly sabotaged larry in some way they damaged something he owned they'd done it on purpose why had they done it on purpose because they were resisting his help 
why were they resisting his help? Because some part of their brain wanted to hold on to this painful memory from childhood. Well, if they just opened up about the memory, then they would stop sabotaging him. It strikes me in the book that you were often that person that was in the hot seat and that Mm. it was either you or Santos and it more often you. That's part of the terror to me is the arbitrariness with which he would attack you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether or not the idea that it was more focused on me, I would say that's not accurate. I think that in the book, I had to balance the feeling that it was critical that I tell this story for the sake of somehow managing the idea that our story was being told by other people without any input from any of the victims was unbearable. And knowing the way that people talk about cults and cult victims and and how hard we work to separate ourselves from the experience of victims of this type of abuse, to make them out to be uh, uniquely vulnerable or kind of stupid or freaks or whatever. I just couldn't handle that. But I also knew that everyone else had their own lives. Everyone was in different positions and they had a right to privacy, right? The whole experience had been this guy drilling into your most private, potentially shameful feelings and thoughts, or even the idea that you had invented these things. It all felt so embarrassing. So the only way that I could figure out to do it was to try to limit the story to my own perspective as much as possible to say the things that had happened exclusively to me and to talk about other people where it was necessary in order to do that. But I think it would be wrong to say that other people hadn't gotten it just as bad as I did. And it was so constant and and comprehensive. Yes, it felt random and arbitrary. And that was part of what was so insidious is it was unpredictable. But I, I don't think that I mean, maybe by the time I left, there was a period of time when I was certainly the focus and it became especially extreme for me. And I think that's part of, in a way, what made it possible for me to leave was that it just became unbearable. But there were other times when it was just as extreme for other people. I think that's a perfect way to control people, right? Is Mm -hmm. here's the formula. Here I am, this charismatic person. I'm going to offer you a solution for your problems, right? I'm going to remove your fear. It's replaced with a worse fear in many Mm -hmm. ways. And if you put people in fear, you can control them very easily. Especially if they're tired. Yes. Yes. Especially if you keep them vulnerable by being tired, by cutting off their support system, by isolating them. These are all like textbook things that cult leaders do. I mean, they're not unique. I've, I've heard them in many other situations. Mm-hmm. He addressed that. He posed that set of feelings of being exhausted, of feeling vulnerable, of feeling confused as positive. He said, I'm putting you in this circumstance in order to make you like a raw nerve. And that's what makes it possible for me to, quote unquote, help you the most, that you're the most malleable. So everything, it felt random, but then it also felt planned. It was hard to know It didn't feel like he was just a maniac. It felt like maybe he knew what he was doing. And even if it felt bad, maybe it was supposed to feel bad and that it would ultimately be good. 
And at a certain point that goes on for long enough and you've just invested so much time and you've pushed away your family and friends and you've said to people, oh, this guy's so great that it feels like you're in a pretty deep hole and to climb out of it is borderline impossible. So at some point you mentioned that he talked about the things that people had damaged or broken. And this is when he brings the financial element into it. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk about that a little? Because obviously that was another one of his motives was the money. Yeah. So part of what I should say to make this make sense is that early on, Larry brought in this idea. Essentially, we sat around a table and we were talking about feelings and our experiences. And he brought up the idea of suicidal ideation. And suddenly it was sort of everyone was going around and talking about, and it was clear that these conversations had predated me. This was early on and when I joined the group and everyone was talking about how, yes, they had considered suicide. They did. That was sort of part of their experience that there was a sort of a suicidal part of them. And it came around to me and Larry said, you too, right? And I, in the moment, was thinking and I was like, well, there are there are days when I wish that I didn't have to exist. And I guess that's true. And sometimes I'm like standing on a subway platform and the subway's coming and there's, it's not that I want to, but I do sort of have like a, I imagine myself like, so what would it be like to step off the platform? And, and so maybe it's true. And at the same time, all these people seem to authentically have like real suicidal ideation and even if I don't, I don't want to kind of throw off the whole thing he's doing. And it seems like he's helping them. So sure. I said, yes, I do. And then it became a solid, you know, so see, all of you are suicidal and Talia brought you together and it's unusual. And that's what makes it so critical that we be sort of in Larry's proximity because he was keeping us alive, essentially. And that The way that he described how suicide works was he said that it was this sort of, it was a subconscious impulse, almost like the way a repressed memory is. It was hiding under the surface and we wouldn't know it, but something would sort of trigger it and it would come out and we wouldn't be able to control it. We wouldn't, we'd be sort of out of our heads and we would do it. We'd find a way. And this became a theme, the thing throughout where he would notice someone had styled their hair in a different way than usual. And because of his eye, he knew that they were considering suicide. And then there'd be an eight hour conversation and they would admit supposedly that yes, they had been. So anyway, later on, he would accuse someone of say, you scratched this expensive pan on purpose. And you would eventually admit to it that you had supposedly done it. I should also say, sorry to be diverging, part of Larry's philosophy to help explain this was when I first met him, when we first had that conversation in Starbucks, it was presented as kind of everything you do is a choice. Everything is on purpose. Mm-hmm. And you put your signature on everything you do. And this is as simple as saying, well, at the end of the day, when you're changing out of your clothes, if you throw them on the floor, that's not an accident. That's saying something about how you value yourself. So he's saying you put your signature on every action and you should be able to look back at this school year and say, that was a reflection of me and I stand by my choices, which is fine. That actually sounds kind of legitimate in a way. 
Well, that's the manipulation yes. of the whole thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Legitimate ideas and distorting them. Exactly. Yeah. The groups like this, as they say, no one joins a cult, right? You join a group of people with ideas that sound legitimate or compelling. And every every group like this, uh, there are going to be elements that are that feel genuinely true or helpful but it, it's it's that which gets you caught in the net it's that's the bait right um so that evolved into a situation an abusive situation where there was no such thing as a mistake right because everything's a choice so which is so dangerous because we were in a situation where we couldn't make choices but he would say look this pan has a scratch on it and you might not even have used the pan or remember using it, but he would say you used it and you scratched it on purpose and you would be forced to admit that you had. What this would sort of devolve into is essentially a situation where he would expect you to make up for it somehow, that essentially you had damaged his belongings because he was trying to help you or save you and your brain that suicidal part of your brain had pushed back and wanted to sabotage him to stop him from saving you. Insane. And, right. So mm -hmm. sorry, I'm trying to unknot something that's so complicated. Yeah. And so the only way that essentially that by having done that, by having hurt the man who is trying to help you, you had created a sort of psychological problem for yourself. And to fix it, right, to be able to move forward, you needed to make up for it. You needed to fix the problem. And so what that became was, well, if you just, this pan apparently costs $1,000. So you need to reach out to your family or how, he wouldn't say it that directly, but you know, whoever, just somehow you need to get the money and you just buy a new pan and then problem solved, you'll feel good about yourself. You've made up for this thing, this damage that you caused to your helper. So you're not only that's using guilt, right? That's making you feel like you owe something to him. And it's providing a pretty clear seeming path to restitution. And this is how he generated money from you guys. Right. And I should say the lever too was if people were going to their parents, they're saying, I'm suicidal. If I don't do this, if I don't fix this i broke larry's saw or something there's a very good chance that i'll kill myself and then as a parent i don't know what you do when did you oh how am i trying to say this uh what was your breaking point i guess is my mm. question the idea of a breaking point is interesting right and i was thinking about this and trying to tell the story because we want there to be a breaking point because we've been trained by traditional narratives and movies and TV to believe that there's an arc and there's a point at which the person just can't handle it anymore. And I would say it was more spread out than that, right? There was a point at which the abuse had become very extreme. Larry had accused me of something. He had me standing up in front of my friends. He had, this was in the cut and, and in the book. He made a sort of fashioned a, what he called a garrote out of aluminum foil and saran wrap. And he had it wrapped around my genitals. And so he was, he was torturing me in front of my friends and trying to get me to admit that I had done something, which was typical. And it was so extreme, I think, that I kind of I disassociated a bit. And it felt like I was kind of floating out of my body and looking at it. And 
I remember feeling like, first of all, this doesn't actually hurt that bad, which sounds strange, I know. But in my mind at the time, I was saying, this guy is claiming that he's an experienced sort of interrogator. He's talking about how he's done this in the field. He worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency. This was part of his whole mythos. And if it doesn't hurt, but he's saying it hurts, then either he doesn't know what he's doing or this is a performance. And what does that mean? Because everyone else is sitting around and they think it does hurt, but it doesn't. So that's odd. And I realize all of this sounds mechanical and strange given how horrible it is, but it's just, I, I think that's you kind of have to detach yourself from the actual emotion in order to survive something like this. And what happened in the moment was I thought, okay, well, what if, if it is a performance or if he just doesn't know what he's doing, just offer up a lie? What if I just lie? What if I make up a story and see if he buys it? And it just hadn't occurred to me. And like, that's a kind of power, a kind of taking back of control to say, well, what if I just, the whole time I had just been trying, I was like, he knows what the truth is. I don't know what the truth is. What if I just try to find the truth and give it to him? And I just thought, well, what if I just make it up? And so I made up a story about I was finding a baby, you know, I'm a writer, I was there's a baby bird in my driveway. And I was young, and I just couldn't help it. I, I first I wanted to touch it, but then I crushed it. And it was kind of on accident, but it was kind of on purpose. And I've been wondering if I was a sociopath ever since and I've been hiding that my whole life. And I didn't want that to come out in this conversation. So that's why I've been kind of sabotaging things because I was trying to divert attention away from, you know, whatever. And it was a good enough story. You know, I had succeeded as a storyteller and everyone was, oh, this revelation. And he also was like, good job, you know, oh, we've, we've arrived. And so it ended. The torture went away. Suddenly I have a kind of power that I didn't have before. And also this confirms that either he, this man who's presented himself as like the ultimate arbiter of what is true and what is false, that he always knows if you're lying. Either he didn't know, and so all that is wrong, or he maybe he did, but he was willing to go along with a lie for the sake of a, a successful performance for my friends. Mm. So all of that undermined everything. And, and I think that groups like this, they're really built on a house of cards, and it's a big house of cards. But once you pull a card out from the bottom, it maybe takes a while for the whole thing to collapse, but it does. And then it becomes a separate question of can you physically extricate yourself safely? So that it's not like I walked right out the door after that moment, because it began a series of thoughts for me that ended in me having to figure out how I could get out of this apartment, get away from these people without feeling like they were going to turn all of their energy towards either physically hurting me or just sort of destroying my life as best they could. I found it interesting that his phrase was pain is weakness leaving the body. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so crazy. So yeah. manipulative. That, uh, yeah. that comes right from the Marines. You know, right. he didn't make that up. Okay. Okay. So um, that's like a whole other conversation we could have about what that means. Do you feel yeah. like you were in pain when he was with the garrote? Or do you feel like it just truly wasn't painful and it was performative on his part? I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I, I guess I stand by my own account. I think that it didn't hurt as much as he thought it did and that he thought it looked 
disturbing and it sounds, you know, and I tell, I see the look on your face, right? When I tell that story, I know in the cut or things like this, it's, it's so extreme and it sounds so disturbing. And I think he knew that, that he was doing something really visibly upsetting. And that's what made it feel so strange to me that I was, I was like, the performance of this doesn't match up with the reality, which is that this is horrible that this man has, is doing anything with my genitals at all. My God. But he's saying that I should be in like excruciating pain. So I'm kind of pretending to be in excruciating pain. And why am I pretending? I'm mean, to satisfy him, to satisfy my friends so that they feel like he's effective at it. Like, what is going on? And there was this sort of moment of, I was like, why am I pretending? What is happening? And then I thought, well, what if I lean into the pretending? And then suddenly I was, without realizing it, was taking some power back. Wow. And so at some point, Talia, she kind of kicks you guys out, right? She says, okay, that's it. It's over. Yeah, there's a moment in there. I think that the whole experience was characterized by like never being able to quite put your finger on what was going on or what was going to happen. And never feeling like you really had control over what was happening today or tomorrow or even what had happened to you yesterday. And so there was a point at which Talia said, you all have messed up my dad's life enough. You've sabotaged all, you know, broken all of his things. You've made a mess. At this point, the apartment is full of construction equipment and wood and all, the, all things that Larry had brought in, but claimed that it was our fault for not being able to somehow organize things. Truly like a hoarder's apartment. And so she said, you know, you all need to get out of here. But then, so I thought, oh, it's over. But it wasn't, it wasn't really over. And that was another kind of performance and people stayed and Larry had me stay, but somehow it was as if it wasn't in the same capacity. Like supposedly we no longer lived there, but people did. I didn't get out. No one got out, but I didn't get out until right before the last semester of my senior year of college when I finally was able to get housing again on campus because I, I had been rejected for housing the first semester of senior year. I was just angling my whole life towards getting into that single room on campus senior year without Larry following me. I feel comfortable saying, I mean, in some ways, Sarah Lawrence saved me from the situation, right? It was the, it was the bed that I finally could go to and be safe after I left. Sarah Lawrence also made it impossible for me to find housing on campus when I was trying to get out of this situation in the first place at the beginning of my senior year. I want to say that anyone who's gone to Sarah Lawrence, I think would agree that there's an immense separation between the teachers and the student body and the administration. I loved my professors when I was there. They gave me so much and, and made me feel like I was growing and learning and like finally sort of becoming who I wanted to be and all, all of those things. And I had great relationships with a lot of them. The administration <laughs> was not really on top of it and didn't, I don't think, made students feel protected, engaged. In fact, there's, to me, there was always this feeling of animus as if the administration resented the students as kind of a burden that they had to deal with in order mm. to get their jobs done. So I think that's a, a problem. Part of what I knew would happen after the story came out is that 
we all would love to have a really simple target to blame because mm-hmm. that would make us feel relieved. Okay, so we know whose fault it is. We know who screwed up. We know the answer to how to avoid this. And therefore, we don't have to feel scared. Or we can prevent this in the future. Kind right. Of thing. That is valid, right? But I knew that the experience I had and the reasons it happened were complicated and varied and and depended on a lot of different things. So to tell ourselves, oh, well, it's just changes in how a college campus is administrated and protected, that'll prevent this from ever happening again, would be fooling ourselves, right? That'd be wrong. Or to say that it was the parents and we just somehow need to change how parenting works in America, and this will never happen again, would be wrong. Or to say that, well, it's just that this guy was a unique maniac alien who just showed up, and we just need to look out for guys like that and avoid them, and it'll never happen. That's closer, (laughs) but it still wouldn't be quite enough. So it's all of these things. Or to say that young people are just vulnerable and kind of weak and and a little stupid, and we need to keep them sheltered, you know, that, that's also wrong. So what I wanted to do was I thought if I told the story in all of its complexity and reality and made the reader feel really close to me as I was walking through, as these things were happening moment to moment, they would feel how it's so many different things that come together to make someone a human being vulnerable to this type of manipulation because of just the nature of the human experience. That's what I was going to say to you, Daniel. I think that you touch on something that's more global than just specifically being inculcated into something like this. It's just that human kind of need to be accepted. It's that human need to be heard, to be seen, to be understood. Mm-hmm. And not feel like the other, for example. Right. And how you it know. could kind of happen to any of us, I right. think, and I that, think and, is a lesson of the book. And, you know. and in the hands of a master manipulator, we're all vulnerable right. to that. Right. And it's also, uh, in addition, I'll say the desire for simple answers is very strong. And I think that we see that a lot more broadly politically right now. Not, to, I know that's a whole other conversation, but the world is very complicated and it's it's hard to live in it and it's hard to understand what's going on and how things work and this is why we have experts and we learn to trust people who tell us how things work and sometimes that's the right thing to do but it's hard to gauge who to trust and who not to trust and this is why you see a lot of people just going for whatever feels to them like the simplest most available answer someone who shows up who is charismatic and compelling and says, this is what's actually happening. It's not so unknowable. It's in fact knowable. Here you go. But the very source that you're looking for, for those answers is also sort of like degrading the whole process in many ways, because presumably you trust this guy. And I'm just wondering, was there anybody in your life that you felt close enough to that you could have gone to and said, something is very, very wrong here. I kept on hoping, hoping, hoping that there was somebody, that one person that maybe you could go to and say, give me some perspective here. This is so twisted. No, (laughs) (laughs) because that's not how it works, really. It's not as if I was 
consciously in my head the whole time thinking, you know, something is wrong or feels strange. And, and I just need to sit down and have a conversation with someone I trust. I had friends that I loved and, and who were reaching out to me as much as I, I would receive that uh, or reciprocate the whole time I was there. There was a good amount of time when I was talking to my parents really regularly. But what's going on feels, first of all, so incomprehensible. The idea of trying to explain, like that's why writing this book took me so long, because you have to tell someone everything in order to tell them anything. I can't just say, there was this point where he put me in a garage. Do you know what a garage is? You, know, <laughs> you need to contextualize the whole sure. thing in order to get there. And it's this sort of boiled frog thing. And as I said, I just was in it. You know, I was in the middle of it and it was happening every day and I was exhausted and confused. And I think that my brain, and I think this is typical, my brain was doing everything that it possibly could to convince me that my life was normal. I'm a normal person. I'm a young man. And yeah, this is weird what's happening. But it's just part of being a person. This is kind of an experience. It'll be over at some point. And it got more and more extreme to the point where I could no longer tell myself it was normal. But for a long time, I just tried to explain it that way. And then you try and explain it that way to other people because you just don't want to feel shame or judgment. Yeah. How would you tell someone, I, I let this, you, that is, this is how it feels, that you would have to say, I let this happen to me. Mm -hmm. And I had been convinced that everything was a choice, right? So I chose this. I, over and over, I said, yes, I let it happen. I consented. I didn't walk out the door. I could have, but I didn't. It's just embarrassing. And, and it's funny you bring up consent because you really said consent was sort of off the table with stuff with Larry. You kind of couldn't consent or not consent to what was going on in many ways, which I found was interesting. Right. It's an extreme version of a completely imbalanced power dynamic with a man who holds all the cards, right? And you're relying on him for all kinds of things, right? He's become, at a certain point, he became you know, the source of my social world, all my friends were there, my living situation. I relied on him for everything. I just didn't know. He started to sort of also take my stuff. You know, he was fixing my computer. He was taking a look at my phone. You know, he just had my things. And at a certain point for me to leave would have meant abandoning everything, abandoning my friends, abandoning my, where would I go? I just, I guess I'd be shoeless in New York, just trying to find something. So there wasn't really an option to say yes or no, because when everything is stacked against you and saying no means giving up everything, that, that's not really a choice. Was writing the book a part of the healing process for you? Yeah, more and more it's feeling that way. I think in the course of writing the book, I was living in Los Angeles and I would have to, uh, Larry had taken my laptop, my notebooks, any sort of like photos recording. I really didn't have anything. And so I had had this experience that completely undermined at the time my faith in my own memory my own account. Mm -hmm. And what I had to do to write this book was to stand by myself and to say, I do remember my account is valid. My story 
from my perspective matters. And I had to go back there in my mind. If I was writing a scene in the living room, then I would stand in the living room in my house and try to remember, you know, where were people and what were they saying and where did I sit and what was happening? And, uh, and you know, when there's a scene on the roof of the building, I went up to the roof of my building and, and I had to really re-enter it, which was really painful. But this experience of saying that I believe myself, that's healing. Can I ask you one final question, Daniel? Because we could talk to you for hours. <laughs> Honestly, mm -hmm. I could. How do you feel about Isabella Pollock being charged along with Larry? Yeah, that unfortunately I can't comment on. Okay, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Just had to ask. What's next for you? This is, I, I really enjoyed your yeah. book. I really urge you, urge you to write beyond this, yeah, this subject, is... beyond this book. You are a really wonderful writer. We read a ton of books. <laughs> you can't you know? see it. We have a whole bookshelf. Yeah, we, yeah, I mean, yeah. we probably right. read two books a week, Which you know, so, and, and I always, just as a side note, I listen to a lot of books on Audible and I have your book on Audible. A good book for me is I know I should go to sleep, but I hit the like sleep timer again. And yes. your book definitely did that. So oh, I just want to say as a side but note. I, I think one of the reasons your book is so scary is because mm. it's so, I think for me, it, it's like I could kind of see it. Yes. You know? Oh, Because I think often I look at these situations and say, that could never happen to me. But when mm. I was listening and reading to your book, it was like, I was kind of going, wow, I could see that happening Absolutely. to me. And I think that that's scary to be able to relate to that and to the power of that. And we really urge all of our listeners to pick up the book. It's on Audible. How can people reach you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I have uh, an Instagram that's, I think it's Daniel Barban Levin. I have a website. It's also danielbarbanlevin.com and you can contact me there. Thank you so much for everything you said. I, I really appreciate it. Oh my God. And just on a personal level, like we're both, we're both moms and it <laughs> makes me like feel ferociously maternal. I am like, mm. but you know, we, yeah, we were we... big fans of yours actually before reading the book, yeah, absolutely. just from the yeah. story, yeah. we were like, you kind of touched us. So I know I actually feel really good for having read it and seeing that you're doing so well. I feel kind of maternal. Yeah, me too. I'm like, <laughs> go dare you. Yes, but, um, you know, yeah. but, but also I love that, like, you know, the story that you made up about the bird i love the real story which is that mm. you, this little fawn came and yeah. sat on mm -hmm. your doorstep and you just you were afraid to touch it you just mm -hmm. sort of sat with it and that's like that's the true you and i yeah. like i really i i don't know but like tearing up but yeah, yeah. i just I think you're, I think you have a, a lot in store for you. Yeah. I think oh, that, thank you. And I hope you'll update us. We'll put all of your links up and your books on our social media and your book link. But this has been really quite an experience. Like I said, I could just talk to you for. She's gushing. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel. This has been such a pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate both of you. Oh, you too. I, we appreciate you. Too. Absolutely. Murder, murder, murder.